Do you know what adoption is? Of course you do. But did you know that adoption in biblical times was far different than the way adoption is today? It's one of the things we'll be discussing today as we look at Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Make sure you stick around. Hey, I'm Jeremy Myers, and this is the Redeeming God podcast. Thank you for joining me today. A lot of people think of adoption today, uh, rightfully so, as when a family, maybe they have children, maybe they don't, decide to adopt into their family someone, a child, who doesn't have any more parents. Maybe the parents aren't around, maybe they died tragically, who knows. And uh, so this new family adopts them into their family, and this child becomes legally their child. And that's the way lots of people think about adoption. And so they read that form of adoption into the Bible. And guess what? That sort of understanding of adoption leads to great misunderstandings in the biblical texts that refer to adoption. One of these is Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, which are the verses we are looking at today. We're going to discuss what adoption is in biblical times and how that helps us understand these texts. Now, before we do that, though, we're going to look at a current event, a quick discussion of critical race theory, and then also answer a question from a reader about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. So let's not waste any time and begin right away with the discussion of the current events, uh, this discussion of critical race theory, which we are seeing all over the news and in politics and on social media all over the place. Nowadays. So, critical race theory, CRT for short, and the social justice movement, SJ or SJM, they're causing uh, intense uh, confusion, maybe, or change, we could put it that way. And many people believe I'm one of them, uh, damage even to this world, and specifically my main concern to Christianity and the gospel. Okay, now. To give the benefit of the doubt here, those who hold to CRT and social justice, SJ, they say they're trying to uh, follow the gospel and follow Jesus, but I think that actually they're doing the exact opposite. Now, they are trying, according to them, trying to get rid of racism. That's commendable. Uh, but it seems that their actions and their ideas are doing exactly the opposite. And so sadly, the Christians who are falling prey to critical race theory and the social justice movement, uh, they're also damaging the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're, they're, they're destroying the, the real ways towards peace that are taught in the gospel, in the Bible. A lot of times people who hold to critical race theory and social justice, they accuse those of us who are on the other side of not following Jesus, not following the gospel, or ignoring the Bible. And that's not true. That sort of rhetoric is completely destructive and damaging. I think better it's better to have a discussion about these sorts of things. And toward that end, I highly recommend a recent book that has been published by Dr. Vadi Balcom Jr., uh, I first met him and heard him speak at a conference in Minneapolis several years ago uh, at Greg Boyd's church. Speaking of which, uh, I, I sort of wonder where, where Greg Boyd is on this topic recently, and if he and Vadi are still getting along. I, I think that uh, they have different opinions on this particular topic, so I sort of wonder. It would be nice to hear a debate between the two of them, maybe, on this topic. But uh, I, I digress. Uh, Dr. Balcom's book is called Fault Lines. The, the, um, 
Subtitle is The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. Now, it, it was uh, published a couple of weeks ago, and it has hit numerous best-selling uh, lists, including USA Today's best-selling list. It's on numerous Amazon best-selling lists. And yet, ironically, as I just went not 20 minutes ago to search for this book on Amazon, you search Amazon for fault lines, and even though it's on numerous Amazon best-selling lists and other best-selling lists, Amazon has completely almost delisted the book uh, because, well, it's Amazon. They, uh, th they're guided and controlled by many who hold to critical race theory, and so they don't like to see a book like like Dr. Balcom's having success. And so I searched for fault lines on Amazon and it didn't come up in the first 20 pages of results. I just stopped. I wasn't even sure if it would ever come up in a result. So to find it, it is there, but you they're stifling it, uh, the, the searches. And so you have to search for fault lines by Balcom or fault lines by Vadi Balcom. And then Amazon's like, fine, okay, we get what you're searching for. We didn't want to show it to you before, but here it is. So if you're trying to find the book, I will include a link in the manuscript show notes section for this podcast at redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, or 5 through 6. Uh, but you can also just get it by searching Amazon. But make sure if you can't find it initially, search for Fault Lines by Vadi Balcom, B-A-U-C-H-A-M. Now, I'm not just going to talk about this book in today's podcast. It's such an important book that I'm going to talk about it at, during the current events section of the next several podcasts. Probably look at a chapter or two each uh, episode, okay? Now, uh, at the beginning of this book then, Fault Lines, uh, Dr. Balcom defines the key characteristics of critical race theory. And that's helpful because lots of people, we might have heard of critical race theory, CRT, things like that in the news or on social media, but maybe we don't know exactly what it is. And so uh, he does this for us, and thankfully, he does this the right way. He uses the proponents, the words of the proponents of critical race theory to define it for him. It's always dangerous to define an opposing viewpoint using your own words, because then they say, you didn't properly define it. Well, when you define it using their own words, they they can't say that. And so that's what he does. It's very helpful. Uh, I'm just going to sort of summarize what he writes in the introduction to the book, and he basically points out from the writings and teachings of critical race theory proponents themselves, that as a theory, as an approach to society and culture and politics, it is based on the ideas of Karl Marx. At its core, critical race theory is a version of Marxism, all right, which right away should send warning flags and alarms uh, off in the minds of every uh, Christian who is aware of history and politics. Marxism as a belief system, has caused more violence, has killed more people in the history of the world than any other political perspective. Uh, Marxism is inherently violent, okay? And so uh, right there, uh, we should be have some warnings raised in our minds about critical race theory since it is based on Marxism. Now, uh, because of its, of its foundations in Marxism— the proponents of critical race theory, they're not really that interested in reforming culture or society. That's why you often hear them talk about revolution. Okay, they don't want to reform. They want to destroy and then remake. That's what they want. So take, take police, for example. You don't hear them talking about reforming the police. They don't want to reform the police. They want to get rid of the police. They want to defund them. In other words, get rid of them and start over. 
Okay. And that's the way they approach all aspects of their goals for society and culture. They don't want to reform it. They want to destroy it and remake it. Now, why is that? It's because, and here's sort of the central idea of critical race theory. Uh, they want to destroy and just remake things because they believe that pretty much everything about society is inherently racist. You might hear them use the terms systemic racism, systemically racist, okay? And so uh, they would say that because racism is at the root of every aspect of society and culture, it can't be reformed. You have to destroy everything and start over. Okay, and, and it's not just, you know, generic racism. It's specifically white privilege and white supremacy. And therefore, white supremacy, white privilege, racist ideas and thoughts and methods are behind pretty much all aspects of culture, such as politics, uh, education, economics, business, hiring practices, okay, taxation. It all needs to be torn down. And we need to start over. And so, so I mean, just to take one of those, education, for example, you sometimes hear proponents of critical race theory say that things like logic and even math are racist. And you might say, how can math be racist? Uh, well, what they argue is, is that only traditionally, historically, white people use things like logic and math and reason and the sciences to make decisions. Uh, that is not generally the way people from Africa or other, some, some, some minority cultures here in the United States, um, do, make decisions. In, in other cultures, uh, they make decisions based on narrative and storytelling and emotions and their personal experiences that they have gone through in their life. Okay, and so therefore, according to critical race theory, any society or culture which, which is primarily based on the sciences, which uses logic and reason, is therefore a white supremacist, uh, you know, inherently racist, white privileged culture, because it doesn't give the same weight to storytelling and narrative and emotions and personal experience. Okay, and um, so, so that's sort of the root idea here. So that, that's, that's critical race theory. And by the way, if you, this is why, I don't know where you stand on this position, but if you've ever participated in some debate or had a discussion with, with a proponent of critical race theory, and as soon as you start to bring up statistics or use logic or use reason to refute the ideas of critical race theory, without a doubt, before long, you will get accused of being a racist, Okay. And uh, why? Because, because logic is racist. <laughs> uh, and, and so, so it's very difficult to argue against critical race, race theory for, for these reasons, because as soon as you start to raise arguments against it, you get called a racist. Um, now, obviously a lot more could be said about critical race theory. Dr. Balcom in his book does that. And I encourage you to get it if you want to learn more about it and, and some of the ideas behind it. Okay, but here's why critical race theory is so destructive to society in general, and, and specifically to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you read the gospels uh, and the letters of the, you know, the epistles, letters of Paul and Peter and so on, uh, one of the things we discover is that among the numerous things Jesus came to accomplish, one of the things he wanted to do was tear down and destroy the divisions between the races. And you might say, Jeremy, that sounds an awful lot like what critical race theory wants to do. They also want to 
tear down and destroy these racist divisions, these, these racist structures, these racist systems to bring equality and equity, okay? The thing is, uh, and by the way, that's true. If there's one, and that's one of the things why so many churches are adopting and accepting critical race theory, because on its surface, it sounds like the goals of critical race theory and the social justice movement line up with those of Jesus in the gospel. There was lots of racism in, in the days of Jesus, between Jews and Gentiles and the Romans and pretty much everybody else, and all sorts of things, okay? Jesus came to to bring an end to all of that, and critical race theory wants to do the same thing. So, you know, critical race theory lines up with the gospel. Well, no, it doesn't, and here's why. It's not the goals that are wrong, necessarily. It's the methods. The proponents of critical race theory, they are rightly trying to destroy racism, but they're doing it in the opposite ways that Jesus did it. The exact opposite ways. We're going to cover this a lot when we get into Ephesians chapter 2, because that's what the entire second chapter of Ephesians is all about. It's how Jesus came to destroy racism. Uh, but just as a foreshadowing, a foretaste, we're going to see what we will see that the way Jesus brought an end or, or created, showed us how to end racism is uh, you know, to bring healing and restoration among people who were enemies and hated each other. The way Jesus did this is not through destruction, not through accusation and a lack of forgiveness, um, but, but, but through forgiveness, but through grace, but through love. That's what we see Jesus doing on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, yes, he killed the hostility between the races, but he didn't do it by destroying the lives of other people or even by talking negatively about one race versus another. Uh, he didn't destroy racism by requiring others to die for him. Instead, Jesus died for others and then calls us to do the same. All right? the, the gospel uh, doesn't call all of us to think the same, act the same, or, or anything like that. Instead, it calls us to recognize that we're not the same and then celebrate those differences because our differences are exactly how God made us to be. Now, is it true? Let's just go back to this idea of critical race. Is it true that whites, maybe even we could say Asian cultures, are reliant more on logic and reason, whereas other cultures are more dependent on storytelling and narrative uh, and emotions? I don't know if that's true or not. I suppose we, for the sake of benefit, we could say, sure, it's, it's, it's true. But Jesus wouldn't come along and say, therefore, one way is better than the other. No, he says everybody uh, needs to enjoy and celebrate the differences that we all have and recognize that it's all part of a mosaic, all part of a, a big picture. And we all can learn to appreciate the strengths of others uh, and also not realize that it makes us insignificant or inferior because we don't think that way or act that way. And when there are disagreements, as there will be, when there are misunderstandings, as there will be, when we are hurt or wronged, we do not seek vengeance. We're not supposed to seek the destruction of others, but we are to love and forgive. And if biblical justice can be achieved, that is the only way to do it, the way that Jesus did it which is the exact opposite of what we see from critical race theory and the social justice movement.
All of us, all Christians, everybody who follows Jesus, Dr. Balcom, myself, you, okay, everybody's concerned about racism. Everybody's concerned about justice. All Christians who truly follow Jesus want to see peace and reconciliation. But critical race theory accomplishes nothing of the sort. And we'll be talking a lot more about this. I could say a lot more, but 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 I encourage you for now uh, to just go 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 buy this book, Fault Lines by Vadi Balcom Jr. Uh, it's a fantastic book. In fact, I would say it's probably one of the best books I've read in the last decade, uh, specifically because it hits all the points that are so important right now with everything going on in our culture and society and around the world. And if you're concerned about the gospel, I think what he is saying in this book provides a good insight and a good direction and points us in the way that Jesus has called us to live so that we can bring peace and reconciliation to this world. Okay? So uh, we'll talk more about this next time. Let's go on now to a letter from a listener. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's something in your email box. Oh, well, thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, So I received this letter from Michael Spina. I hope I'm saying your last name correctly, Michael. Spina, maybe Spina. Anyway, here's what he wrote. Uh, Hi, Jeremy. I've been a member of your Redeeming God website and absolutely love everything you teach. I love your courses and books because I can tell you're very practical and truthful to what you say. Your judgments are very sound and don't favor any extreme views. Uh, It's people like you who I seek out for assurance that I'm on the right track. In my personal opinion, your take on the gospel is the most clearest and convicting and is the most comparable to that of the Apostle Paul. I hope you're encouraged by that. Michael, thank you very much. I am encouraged. Um, Sometimes I wonder if what I teach is helping anybody out there. So it's emails like that that uh, really do help me keep going. And so thank you very, very much for the encouragement. I really appreciate it. You have no idea how much. But uh, here's the question. Now, I do have a theological question, and it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. I'm sure you know the story. Yes, I, I do know the story. Probably you all know it too. What happened in Acts 5 is the early church was in Jerusalem, and they were needy because many of them didn't have work. There's a long reason, a long explanation for why they, they came to celebrate um, the Passover, and uh, then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and so rather than go home, many of them stayed to receive the teachings, and so, of course, they weren't working. Uh, anyway, as a result, various people decided to give to provide for the finances, and one of them was Barnabas, and he gave a lot of money. He sold some property and gave all the money to the church, and so that many of them provided. And Ananias and Sapphira thought, well, this is a great deal. That sounds good to me. So they did the same thing. Um, they ended up getting more than they thought, so they decided to keep the extra and brought the rest to Peter. Peter said, is this everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, we gave everything, and of course, they both ended up dying. And so there's lots of questions here on why, what happened, all right? And um, Peter, of course, accused them lying to the Holy Spirit and so on. So anyway, the question from Michael is this, did they commit the unforgivable sin? Because if not, why did they die? Why not be given the chance to repent? So there's the question, and it's a really uh, great question. Uh, I've struggled with this question quite a bit. In my time of teaching as a pastor, and now um, in the last several decades as a chaplain and so on, and I do plan, by the way, on trying to address this event in a future book that I will be writing called The Bible Mirror, and I don't know how many years away I am from publishing that. So 
Uh, what I did is I sent to Michael, and I'm going to sort of give them to you on the podcast, my notes from that book, that future book. Uh, now, they're only theories at this point, okay? I have not studied in detail or at depth Acts chapter 5 and what's going on here. And so what I'm going to share with you here is likely going to change significantly between now and then. But here is what I sent to Michael, and here is what I want to share with you as well, sort of my current take on what's occurring in Acts chapter 5. Now, first of all, it's very important. And I would say no matter what conclusion you come to on Acts chapter 5, here's the bottom line thing to remember. The text does not say that God killed them. It's often taught this way in churches. They lied to the Holy Spirit, so God struck them down. You better be careful that you don't lie. All right? Uh, or in, in the churches that really emphasize tithing. If you're going to tithe, you better give the whole amount or God's going to kill you. Okay? That's often the way this passage is used in a hateful way in some churches. And it is a, a horrible misunderstanding, misrepresentation, misreading of the text. Nowhere does the text say that God killed them. Okay? So get that out of your mind. It says they fell down and died. That's what it says. Uh, but something very strange is going on here about how they died and why they died. But whatever, whatever happened, God did not kill them. Okay, and notice, and that's one thing to note. Now, some clues about what is happening are also found in the text. For example, uh, the result of their death is the great fear fell upon all. Fear. Uh, God, when God works, fear is not the result. Love and grace is. And I would say that, in fact, one of the best ways of reading the book of Acts, or one way you could read the book of Acts, is uh, to see how it's divided between two themes, uh, filled with fear versus filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, those, those two ideas crop up over and over and over in the book of Acts. And you can sort of see the, the events and circumstances that cause people to be afraid, and the events and circumstances that cause people to be filled with the Holy Spirit, or even the results of, e of each. When people act out of fear, what happens? When people act uh, based on being filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? It would be a great study. And uh, they're closely, both are closely related to law versus love as well. Uh, living by the law leads to fear, and living by fear leads to forcing people to live by the law. Same with love. Living by the Holy Spirit leads to love. And when you live in love then you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and so on, okay? So uh, what Acts does is it shows a series of mistakes that people made because they were living by fear and law. And it shows a series of miracles, uh, wonder, amazement, awe, because people were living by the Spirit and were filled with, with, with love. So uh, I think what's going on here then with this event in uh, Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira is because the result is fear, that gives us a hint that the Holy Spirit had nothing whatsoever to do with these events. This is something else entirely. Okay, so that's sort of the second main clue here to keep in mind as you're studying this text. The third thing I would encourage people to do is to look at this event as a crime scene investigator. Okay, forget that this passage is in the Bible. A lot of times when we think a passage, when we have that in our mind, this passage is in the Bible, it causes us to read the text in a completely different way. But if you take, 
If you take this passage, take it out of the Bible, okay, it's not in the Bible, you read about this in your morning newspaper, this happened at a church across town, and here is what we got reported by the pastor of the church, Pastor Peter, okay, uh, or, or, you know, you're the crime scene investigator, you heard about two people who died at a local church service, and uh, you go and you show up and Pastor Peter shows up and he's like, yeah, yeah, uh, investigator, here, let me tell you what happened. All right, what would you think? <laughs> What's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, you read the text fairly clearly. Peter is alone in the room when an Ananias comes in. Okay, and then the young man come in and take him out. And then Sapphira comes as well, and same thing. Peter's alone in the room. And then when she falls down dead, the young men come in and take, carry her out. All right, so you're the crime scene investigator. This is the story that Pastor Peter is telling you. Who is your number one um, suspect? Who's your prime suspect? <laughs> well, obviously, it's Pastor Peter. He's alone in the room with them. You look into his past. He, He's got a bit of a violent streak. He was hanging out with this guy named Jesus just uh, a month or two before, and someone tried to arrest Jesus, and Peter whips out a sword and tries to lop off a head of, a, of another pastor in town, this guy named Malchus. Okay? Uh, and, and Peter's always trying to kill people. His violence, of course, is always justified because this is what God wants. Okay? And um, so this is, you know... This is this is who you're investigating. Peter's the prime prime suspect. And so your question as an investigator, has Peter changed? Well, the early chapters of Acts, if you go and you look at the history and so on, a little bit back to the Bible now, you see that Peter is changing, but he's not yet fully changed. At this point in the book of Acts, Peter still does not think the gospel should go to the Gentiles. Okay? He's very zealous for God and the law at this point. Uh, he still thinks that some Jews and Gentiles are outside the grace of God. For example, in, he, we see this in Acts 10 with Cornelius, this God-fearing Gentile. He's a convert to Judaism, but Peter's like, no, the gospel's not for him. And Jesus is like, yes, it is. What I've said clean is clean. Don't you declare unclean. Okay? And, and then there are, are Peter's words in Acts 5. Um, another clue here to show us Peter's heart. He says, can a man lie to God? Well, no, obviously, a man cannot lie to God. But uh, in Acts 5, this lie was directed at Peter, okay? not at God. So, so um, God knew what was going on, and it is Peter that is lied to, not God. And so what's happening here? Peter, his ego is affronted. Oh, you think you can deceive me? You think you can hide from me how much money? I've got secret. I know your secrets, okay? Who's really the offended party here? Is God the one who's hurt because Ananias and Sapphira didn't give 100% of what they earned from the sale of their property? No, I, I, don't, I honestly don't think God cared too much. Uh, who's the offended party here? It's Peter. But what does Peter do? He blames his offense on God. Can a man lie to God? And that's what we often do, right? When we're offended, uh, we think it's God who's offended, and we are just instruments, tools, vessels of his wrath, who carrying out his justice on earth, okay? Look, um, what am I saying? Look, it can't be proven. 
I'm not saying this can be proven, but my sort of current theory, idea, hunch, we'll find out in eternity, is that Peter might have had more to do with the death of Ananias and Sapphira than God did. Let me say it this way. Peter had a lot more to do with the death of Ananias and Sapphira than God did. God had nothing whatsoever to do with it, but they still died. How did that happen? Mm, I don't know what Peter did. I don't know how he was involved. Um, some people, I've read, I've read some commentaries who hold this view, and uh, they say this. Remember, Luke was a physician, and it says they fell down and breathed their last. It's, there's, a, there's a hint here. Maybe some people think there's a hint here that, that Peter might have poisoned them. Okay? So obviously he didn't whip out a sword and kill them. That would have been too obvious. The young men come in and their heads are lopped off. It's hard for Peter to say God did this. But if the young men come in and they're just on the floor, not breathing, then, you know, if Peter did have something to do with it, maybe he poisoned. Look, it's a very difficult text. Uh, so we need to be careful to hold our conclusions lightly on this. And I don't know if you accept this theory or not. It is 100% a theory, but again, think of it, think of yourself as a crime scene investigator. What's going on here? One thing we know for sure here, and I don't, I don't know what view you might hold. I don't know what view I'm eventually going to come to finally on this passage. Uh, but one thing I know for sure, I will never, ever say God had anything to do with it. God did not kill Ananias and Sapphira. They did not commit the unforgivable sin. God does not kill people. Okay, whether No matter how much they lie to him or lie to others, no matter how greedy they are or deceptive they are, it doesn't matter. God doesn't kill people, and he didn't kill Ananias and Sapphira. I firmly believe we will see Ananias and Sapphira in eternity uh, when, when we are there with, with him and God and Jesus and the rest of the saints. Okay, So anyway, enough about that. That's sort of my current take on Acts chapter 5. We'll see where I'm at in a couple of years as I get that other book out. With that in mind, then, let's move on to our study of Ephesians 5, uh, 1, 5, and 6. So in previous studies from Ephesians 1, we've learned, for example, in Ephesians 1, 4, that election is not to eternal life, it's to service, right? God, he doesn't choose who gets to receive eternal life. Instead, God chooses people to serve him in some way on this earth to accomplish his plan and purposes. Um... Last week in Ephesians 1, 5, the first half, we learned that predestination is similar. Uh, God does not predestine some people to heaven and some people to hell. Instead, um, predestination is uh, God's predetermined, pre-planned desire, okay, about what he's going to do for believers. And ultimately, that's to bring us to him in eternity. We will be glorified in eternity. So it's, it's a statement, predestination is a statement about our eternal security with God. No matter what we've done, will do, have done, okay, won't do, all those things, we will be glorified with God in eternity. Now, we stopped halfway through 1.5, and that's because there's this reference to adoption in 1.5. So the, the theme of adoption in the last half of verse 5, last part of verse 5, and then on into verse 6, wraps up these twin ideas of election and predestination. It's, it's this theme of adoption. And by the way, if you're part of my discipleship group, uh, I have a, an entry, a lesson on adoption, entirely on adoption, in the Gospel Dictionary online course. It's one of the 52 words I look at in that course, the word adoption. So if you're part of the discipleship group, you can take that lesson 
if you haven't already, and see what the rest of the New Testament teaches about adoption. But let me just summarize it for you here as we study these two verses in Ephesians 1. Uh, Ephesians 1, 5 says, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Okay, so when most people read this verse, they think of adoption the way adoption occurs today. Uh, in the modern concept of adoption, you know how it works. There's an orphan. Somehow or another, this child is an orphan. Their parents died. Their parents gave them up for adoption. Parents were deemed unfit to take care of them by the state. Who knows? Whatever it is. And so another family comes along. Maybe they have children. Maybe they don't. And they go through some legal processes and eventually adopt that child as they own. They bring a child that is not their child into their family so that legally it becomes the, the child becomes their child. And that's the way adoption occurs today. Now, that is not the way adoption occurred in the days of Paul and the Jesus in biblical times. Uh, in, in those days, adoption was something altogether different. In the Roman world, uh, it, uh, fathers had what was known as patria potestas. Okay, it means the father's power. And it meant that a father had absolute power over the children in his household as long as he lived and as long as they lived. Uh, if a father entered into financial ruin, he had the power to sell his children into slavery if he wanted. If he was angered by his children, they did something to offend him or whatever, he could kill them. And that was his right because the children were his property. Uh, he could imprison them. Uh, he could even make his children his slaves. Uh, and the law shrugged their shoulders at all these things. It's like, well, it's Patria Potestis. It's the father's power. Uh, interestingly enough, this didn't stop at age 18 or 21 or 13, anything like that. The father maintained this right even when his children became old enough to have children of their own. Okay, so, um, you know, even if the son held political office, even if he was honored by everyone, so, and there are instances in Roman history of these things happening. Uh, it was also Roman law, another aspect of Roman law here, that a child could never possess anything, no matter how old they became. If you were a father and your son was 30 years old and became very rich, guess what? <laughs> um, if, if the son died, all the property goes to the father, not to, not to the children of the son who died, if that makes any sense. Okay. And so, again, an aspect of Patria Potestis. Another aspect of this is very interesting. Uh, most fathers, maybe not interesting, maybe sad. Uh, of course, it happens a lot today, too. Anyway, let's move on. Most fathers at that time had children from many different women. Now, this wasn't because they were polygamists, uh, had many wives. They didn't. Romans believed uh, in uh, one man, one wife, one husband, one wife. Most husbands had one wife, but they were very rarely faithful to their wife, and they would often sleep around quite a bit, especially with the female servants in their household. And so the female servants in a household very often had children where the master of the household was the father. Okay, and guess what? The children of the female servants were considered slaves. They were not considered heirs. They were considered property. And uh, so that's one way for you to get yourself some more servants is by 
having children through your female servants if you wanted. And uh, so, so that, that's, that's sort of the, the situation in Rome. Okay, so just imagine this scene. That's sort of what's, what's happening here. I haven't talked about adoption yet. We're going to get to that. Imagine this scene, though. You have a father, and he has multiple sons. He's got one wife, and he's had multiple sons uh, and many, and, and through his wife. But he also has multiple sons, children, you know, sons and daughters, uh, from slave women in his, in his household. All right, so legally, who is the heir to the father? The father dies. Who is the heir? Well, by default, it's usually the oldest son of the wife. That was the heir by default. Okay, but what happens, remember, Patria Potestis, what happens if the oldest son and the father get in an argument? You know, maybe the father, for whatever, thinks his son is a weakling or whatever, and he doesn't like him. We see this sort of thing happen in movies all the time. What if he had a favorite uh, servant, female servant? And he liked her more than he liked his wife. Uh, and he had a son by this female servant. Don't you think that there might be a little favoritism involved in this man's heart and mind towards the son of the female servant rather than the eldest born son of his wife? What happens in those situations? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It's called adoption. Adoption in biblical times almost always involved a man adopting one of his own sons. Isn't that bizarre? We think of adoption as a family adopting someone who's not their child. In biblical times, adoption was usually when a father adopted one of his own children. Therefore, adoption in biblical times had nothing whatsoever to do with making an orphan, inviting an orphan into your family. Adoption in biblical times was about taking one of your children and declaring them your heir. Instead of the eldest son, which was the heir by default, the father would say, you know what? I don't want the eldest son to be my heir, the eldest son of my wife to be my heir. I want maybe, you know, the second oldest son of my wife or the youngest son of my wife. Or, you know what? Uh, One of these sons of mine uh, from one of my female servants. I really favor him. He, He really got the, you know, the family genes. I like the way he acts and behaves, and she's sort of my favorite anyway, so I want her her son, to be my heir. And that's the way adoption worked in biblical times. Uh, You would adopt one of your own children, and it was a declaration, a legal declaration of who would be your heir to your your wealth and your your family fortune, okay? Um, That was the way adoption worked. Now, politically, there were times when a man might adopt the son of another family, someone who was not biologically his son. When would that occur? Uh, it was. It, it would occur when two families wanted to um, form an alliance. Okay, uh, it's sort of like you see in movies and sometimes read about uh, in history books, where uh, two families want to form an alliance, and so one family has a daughter and the other family has a son. So they unite their families through marriage. All right, we're going to unite our families by my son marrying your daughter. Well, in Roman times, you could unite families by an exchange of sons. I've got a son. You've got a son. Let's both adopt each other's son. Or you don't have any sons, uh, but you got a lot of money. 
I have a son and not as much money, so you're going to adopt my son and we are going to unite our families together and our fame and our fortune and our power and so on. Okay? And so that was another form of adoption back then. Again, these rich families were not adopting orphans, poor orphans off the street. In this, this form of adoption, when they adopt a child that's not their own, they were adopting the, pow- the son of another powerful and rich family in town so that they could consolidate their power. They could unite their families, form an alliance between two rich and powerful families and become even richer and more powerful, okay? And this happened all the time, especially among the rich families. One of the most famous examples of this this form of Roman adoption is when Julius Caesar named his grandnephew Octavian to be his heir. And Octavian eventually became Caesar Augustus, okay? If you've read the New Testament, you're familiar with these names, Uh, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, was the heir of Julius Caesar through adoption. He was not his biological heir. Julius Caesar adopted his grandnephew. It was a relative of his, but not his son. Adopted him uh, and so that he could be his heir, and he became, Octavian became Caesar Augustus. And okay, I get it. Historically, people say, well, Julius Caesar didn't already have a son, but lots of historians think he did. Uh, many people think Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar had a son with Cleopatra. His name was Caesarian. Um, by the way, that's where we get Caesarian birth, I believe. Uh, but he was never named a Caesar's heir because Julius Caesar didn't like him as much. Caesar loved Octavian. And so Julius Caesar adopted Octavian and became Caesar Augustus. And, and this isn't the only time that happened. Uh, almost every Roman family, powerful Roman family, used adoption this way to create political ties with other rich and powerful Roman families. Uh, During those first 200 years of the Roman uh, Empire, uh, this form of adoption became quite common. Okay, Tiberius, remember him? Uh, Caligula, Nero, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, Marcus Aurelius, and Lucius Verus. You recognize some of those names. All of them became emperor through adoption. Interesting, huh? So, what does all this mean for helping us understand the word adoption in Ephesians 1.5? Look, it has nothing to do with welcoming an orphan into your family. Uh, that misunderstanding causes people to misunderstand predestination. If we are predestined to be adopted, and you think of adoption as God taking someone who's not his child and making them his child, the way we think of a modern adoption, then you're going to think that predestination is God selecting, choosing, predetermining who gets to be in his family. But that's not, that's a, that's a modern misconception because we are not understanding the way adoption worked in Bible times. But when we properly understand adoption, adoption is God choosing one of his sons to be his heir someone who's already his son, to be his heir, that makes predestination make a whole different uh, meaning, and this verse a whole different meaning as well. Paul says that God has predestined us to be adopted as sons. What does that mean? It means he has predetermined, decided, that he is going to make us his heirs. We join the family of God when we believe in Jesus for eternal life. And in eternity past, God decided, predetermined, predestined, that anyone who was his child, he would also make his heir. That's what Paul is writing about here. 
He is saying, and, and, and the, thankfully in the family of God, there's not just one heir. All of us are heirs. God has legally decided to make all of us his heirs, uh, to receive the inheritance of God. And that is how, that was what, what Paul is talking about here. Of course, Paul's a Roman citizen. His readers are Roman citizens. So they all clearly understood what Paul was talking about here. It's a very... Uh, insightful and amazing. Just think about what it means. What does God own? How much power does God have? Think of God, the family of God, the most powerful, wealthiest family in the universe, right? Uh, And you are the heir of God because God has predestined, had made it so decided, declared, predetermined that this is what it would be for his children. All right? Uh, So when Paul says he's predestined us to the adoption of sons, he's saying God is making us his heirs. Look, um, we're no longer slaves, but we are heirs. Paul talks about the same thing, by the way, over in Galatians 4.7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Okay? We were born a slave, but a slave to sin. We became a son through believing in Jesus. And then Paul says this, And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You see how this works? We became a son by believing in Jesus, and since we are a son... God has declared that we are his heirs. A very important truth to understand here. And this is what God is promising us. God has named us heirs. We are heirs with God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what the promise of predestination is all about. It's not about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. No, it's about everybody who's a part of the family of God, all of us children, uh, receiving the inheritance of God. Okay, let's cover verse 6 real quick. Uh, in fact, even the rest of verse 5, I haven't finished verse 5. But the last part of verse 5 and on into Ephesians 1.6 uh, tells us why God has done this, why he has predestined us to be, to be adopted as his heirs. And the reason? Because it pleases him, because he wants to. He does it for his good pleasure. And uh, it's his will to do so. It's not our will. This is not something we decided. It's something he decided. And it's all due to God's will and God's mercy. And in, in, in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Everything God does, he does for his own glory and for his own praise. All because of his grace. And grace, of course, it's not earned, it's not merited. We'll be talking a lot more about grace as we go through Ephesians. So, Or you can, if you're in my part of my discipleship group, take the lesson on grace in the Gospel Dictionary. Grace is freely given. Lots of Christians misunderstand grace. They limit grace. They put restrictions on grace. If you do any of those things to grace, it's no longer grace. Uh, grace is freely given. It has no strings attached. Uh, it, it's it's not something we can work for, uh, or else it would be something we've earned. So has has no restrictions, limits, fine print, nothing. Okay, we'll be talking a lot more about that. So that's Ephesians one five and six. Just a brief summary of what we've seen in Ephesians so far. If you remember back to Ephesians one three, Paul wrote that he was going to write to us about all of the riches and blessings we have in Jesus Christ. And I've told you that this is what the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about. Ephesians is six chapters long. First three chapters, half of the letter, all about the riches and blessings we have in Jesus Christ. And so far, in uh, 4, 5, and 6, verses 4, 5, and 6, we've already seen several of these blessings. We've been chosen or elected to be on God's team 
so that he can fulfill his plan and purposes in this world. You have a plan, you have a purpose, you have a role, you have a function, and the sooner you find out what that is, the better your life will be. Uh, two, we've been predestined so that no matter what, all right, we're going to mess up as part of God's team. We're going to foul, we're going to make mistakes, but guess what? That's okay. Pick yourself up the mat and keep playing because God has predetermined, predestined, predecided that no matter what happens, you're going to be glorified. You're going to spend eternity with him. It's a statement of eternal security. And then thirdly, we've seen today, we've been adopted into a God's family. Uh, we are heirs of God with all of the rights and privileges that that, in, that includes. Okay? And so you don't need to go out there thinking that you're poor and you don't have any power. You don't, can't do anything. Look, you have God behind you. The, the good standing, the wealth and power of God behind you because you are his heirs. You've been adopted as his heir. And in all of these, as we see in verses 4 and 5 and 6, this is all because of his love and his grace and his mercy that he's poured out upon us without limit, without cost. They are free to us. And this is just some of the blessings, some of the riches that God has given to us. We've only looked at few verses so far. We've had three, nearly three whole chapters to go. So uh, we'll be, we'll, you know, what will Paul talk about next? Well, as a, as a preview, just, just look into verse 7, and you can see where we're headed. One of the next things, one of the next riches and blessings that God has given us in Jesus Christ as part of his family, we'll be, t- we'll be considering Ephesians 1, 7 next time. Hey, I think you, I, I hope you found this study on adoption helpful. And it's not just here in Ephesians 1.5 that this concept of adoption makes more sense, but uh, elsewhere in the New Testament where we learn about being adopted into the family of God as well. Go, go get a concordance, look up some of those texts, and uh, read them with new light and new understanding. Thanks for listening. Join us next time when we pick back up in Ephesians 1 verse 7. See you then.